the introduction to his 1969 study of the philosophical thought of John Henry Newman, Edward Sillam had the following to say. As far as philosophy is concerned, he was no Augustine, Aquinas, nor Scotus in stature. His real work lay in other fields. But he stands at the threshold of the new age as a Christian Socrates, the pioneer of a new philosophy of the individual person and personal life. Later, Sillam adds, It is not Newman alone who stands revealed in the great vision he imparts to his readers. Newman only seems to be revealing himself so as to reveal the reader to himself. That's Edward Sillam. My name is Matt Shaminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. And today's episode more or less centers around John Henry Newman and what can be called his personalistic thought. In other words, Newman's reverence and appreciation for the human person in all its depth, richness, interiority, and openness onto the world and other persons. As Newman will say, we are each an infinite abyss of existence, our own center. My guests today are Jules and Katie Van Skyzik, who met as undergrads at Franciscan University of Steubenville in the mid-80s. From there, they went on to study philosophy at the International Academy of Philosophy in Liechtenstein, focusing especially, especially on the personalism of John Paul II, Dietrich von Hildebrand, and John Henry Newman. They left formal academia in 2005, but their interest in personalism and their desire to bring its insights into contact with the wider culture has continued. They have a website called The Personalist Project where you can learn more. They have five children, and so far, five grandchildren. And I got to know Katie and Jules in what I think was the fall of 2007, as they began offering courses of study and personalist thought in their home by way of the aforementioned Personalist Project. And so we would gather in their home, uh, a group of us, and Jules and, and, and Katie would teach, and we focused on the works of, of those three uh, you know, guiding lights just mentioned, uh, Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, uh, von Hildebrand, and Newman. And I, I can't overstate how formative this all was for me as, you know, we engaged in these discussions and, and eventually, you know, courses gave way to reading circles and events with speakers from the outside coming in and, and um, putting before us the richness of personalist thought and, and this vibrant tradition. And I hesitate to call it a tradition because it, it so, it's so vibrant and lively and developing in the present and so attuned to um, the modern world and um, that which is good and that which ails us in, in sort of our modern situation. And so, you know, today's episode, the recording, which too was uh, conducted in Katie and Jules's home, um, is nothing but the continuation of a, of a conversation begun over a decade ago. And so I'm happy to, to um, put this recording uh, in front of you and um, with the hope that you get to know Newman and his attunement to the great, uh, the great dignity and worth and, can, and uh, marvel that is the human person. So with that said, here are Katie and Jules discussing how they first encountered John Henry Newman. So it was a class we uh, took with John Crosby at the uh, 
International Academy of Philosophy, and um, I would say it, it was the. I mean, there's a couple of things about Newman. One is he's a very modern saint, you know, a modern example, writing beautifully uh, and uh, in English. So, whereas all the other saints, you could, all the great thinkers would be in Latin or anyway, something that's much more remote. And also the circumstances of Newman's life and therefore of his reflections were much closer to our own age. Um, and also, uh, both mine and also Katie's particular concerns at the time, you know, his, his ideas on the university, his, his ideas of the church in relation to the modern world. I mean, many, um, many of his thoughts directly uh, touched on areas of our own uh, life and thought. So, I remember in particular a reference that John made, I think it was um, from that, is it Edmund Sillam? book, the introduction. Anyway, he quoted, he he said something about um, the difference between Newman and Aquinas is that Newman is very personally present in all his writings, uh, whereas St. Thomas Aquinas is a a bit remote and very objective. You know, he presents these arguments and then he presents the objections and then he answers the objections, whereas Newman's struggle felt very individual and the universality comes exactly through the individuality of his uh, circumstances and his personality interacting with those circumstances. And that really appealed to me. And I, I have always been somebody who loves memoir. Um, when I read history, I often read, get into a historical period by reading about the personalities, the lives of the of the particular people, and that was really the case for me with Newman. He was a philosopher, but not in a very academic, I mean, he's he's highly academic, but you feel that this all mattered to him so intimately and so so personally, and that that really drew me. So I love his Apologia Pro Vita Sua. I love Ian Carr's biography of Newman, and both of those I've read many times, whereas his more technical and academic work. You know, I would read because it was homework, but I didn't love it in the same way. Uh, when I was thinking about what we were talking about today, I was that distinction came up, or that comparison between Aquinas and Newman, and not just in the way that they wrote, but in my encounters, at least, with um, those that are devoted to Newman and those that are devoted to Aquinas. Um, not that the Thomists don't appreciate Aquinas as the person, but they seem to be enamored of his intellectual prowess and his ideas sort of isolated from the person and even his prose style. And not that that's a bad thing, but anyone that I have encountered that's devoted to Newman seems to be de- devoted to Newman as a person, mm-hmm. as a personality. Yeah, that's it, right. It, yeah, and one thing also to say to what, to what Katie just said is that you, you have access to Newman's inner life because of the copious amount of letter writing he did. Mm-hmm. And those are all preserved and... Uh, any any biography of him will quote a lot. So so it's not just that you find in him the system, but you find in him the individual, a religious uh, Catholic uh, struggling or or not struggling, but in any case grappling with issues and coming to terms with them. So you see 
a subject at work, whereas in most other thinkers, you either get um, the system, the theological or, or philosophical system, or you get somebody else writing about all the actions he went through throughout his life. But, but this intimate familiarity with the person, um, at least I don't know of any, any other uh, person that you can get it from so, so easily as Newman. And he's often, he, sometimes he's compared to Augustine in his confessions, but they don't seem to be quite exactly the same kind of work, right? Right. Augustine seems to be, he's, he's in a sense, I mean, he's confessing to God, right? In praise and also repentance. But Newman, at least for the Apologia, is writing in response to a rather unfair and biting accusation, right? Yeah. So does that sort of time-boundness speak to you, this, this idea that he's responding to the concerns of the time in, in his own life and also in England? And it's very, um, I mean, it has, you know, long-lasting perennial significance, but it's definitely acutely of his moment. Yes. Which seems to be different. Yes, and there's another difference um, pointed out by John Crosby in, in his book on Newman. Um, th- that is that um, even though Augustine is also very present as a subject in Newman you find a kind of vulnerability and he opens his heart in a way uh, that you don't find in um, in Augustine mm-hmm. and therefore I think uh, he he has an attractiveness to particularly this age I mean we, we want I mean the Pope keeps on insisting on this the, the need to be vulnerable in order to establish a communion between persons and I think Newman he, he allows a kind of communion with him personally because he, he is so um, open as an individual including in his struggles and in his sadness and in his you know all sorts of um, intimate emotions. And his life stands out to me in, in one way as one of uh, failures at times Yes, and those seem to be very painful moments. failures, um, and that he's not shy of expressing his pain, his his woundedness, his sense of loss, his sense of uh, injustice. You know that he was misjudged and um, misunderstood, and that that caused him real pain. And and, and at the same time, you have a Newman, and he says this often that truth. Uh, advances at a personal cost, and that that's not only uh, factually the case, but it's right that it's the case. So if if you're advancing a new truth, uh, then it's right that you suffer for that truth uh, to test your seriousness. And you know, I guess Catholics understand that thing, right? How the advancement of truth is related to personal suffering, and. Um, so, so I was just remarking on Katie several times in the last several days about how often it is that Newman starts a work, take the idea of uh, the, the Catholic University in Ireland, or take these uh, various magazines that he started and became editors of, always when he wanted to do something else, but he sort of followed the call of duty, then the actual work itself fails in a matter of years. But what we have as a result is his beautiful writings on the university, his beautiful writings and thoughts about how, what a Catholic magazine should be like, how it must relate to the authorities that keep on sort of interjecting themselves and being worried about the things that are being written, and on the other hand, how um, the magazine must be 
put forward and, and further the, the, the you know, new thoughts um, um, of academics and so on. So you have a lot of um, success that is um, connected with all the failures that he undergoes and experiences and suffers from. And in the midst of all that, what do you see as sort of the uniqueness or the new developments that Newman discovers or works through and puts before us? Like what marks him out as being so, such a genius, I guess, for the time, our time and his? So one of the things I was thinking about when you first um, raised this possibility of a podcast, and I was trying to think, you know, I, yes, he's a modern saint. And on the other hand, there's such a stark um, contrast between the world that he comes from and our world. So, for instance, he came from a very tight-laced religious, you know, culture that praised um, religious faith, that praised virtue, manners, decorum, and so forth. And, you know, what could be more different from our age in many ways? Um, but he himself says, so what I, I see him as a, as a way, uh, like a prophetic anticipation. He, he, it's like the church, God, the Holy Spirit supplying through Newman the remedy for what was to come in the, in the subsequent century. And he, in particular, says that his great, the great struggle of his life was against liberalism in religion. And what he meant by that was a kind of religious relativism, that doctrine, um, is changeable, it doesn't really matter, it can be adapted, it can be adjusted, that um, the purpose of religion is really just to make people nicer, better, kind people, that it lacks this real force and transcendence and truth factor. That was a that was something that that he saw coming. But what I particularly love, not only that he anticipated that, but that he he fought it. Like he was a really um he had this willingness to stand up, call it out, and resist it, and gather a movement around himself, um, even against the preferences, the habits, the norms, um, and the approval of the surrounding culture. So um, that's another thing that for me personally, when I see the particular problems of our age, I take a lot of inspiration from Newman's willingness to start these tracks for the times, this this um, resistance to this creeping secularization, the resistance to um, the clerical establishment of his day, and so forth. That's at least one one mm-hmm. area, and his confidence also in. The, the the power of the individual versus a kind of committee or an establishment or you know it was it was his belief in the personal influence of as the means to spread the gospel for instance you can have official lies or you can have official illusions or official um, culture that that can't withstand the force of one sincere individual. Um, so that that's another area. I'm sure you can think of a lot more. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot more. <laughs> you know, the uh, the uh, centrality of conscience uh, and and of his explanation of what conscience is, true conscience versus what often goes by conscience, and he calls the right of self-will. Um, I think his whole theory of development. Um, yeah, a doctrine that is. Yeah, a development of doctrine is 
is great and uh, very important at a time when, you know, that was in the air, but Newman um, both embraces and purifies it of its excesses. I mean, and that would be one thing that characterizes all of his work, I think. Uh, and this also I get from Newman originally, is the, uh, for, I mean from Crosby, this idea that in Newman you have a uh, coincidence of opposites. He holds together things that in most men and women are uh, are um, separate. So you have people zealous for the freedom of intellectuals, mm -hmm. and they are so convinced of this that they... Um, neglect the duty of Catholics to submit, say, to their bishops or to the Pope and uh, and others who are so impressed with that duty that they become ultramontanes and, and, and suppress freedom of inquiry and so on. In Newman, you have both of those held together and not just um, held together as if he's holding two separate things that are somehow clashing, but he shows how they how they are convincingly held together, how one of them, how both sides... Um, they're dialectically related. Yeah, are enhanced, are are uh, a benefit from being held together. So you see that in, uh, yeah, in his uh, in his idea of university, you see it in development, and at the same time, the uh, the unchangeable uh, essence, core of the faith. You see it in, uh, of course, conscience and and uh, the freedom of conscience and the ab the objectivity of the moral law. Yeah, yeah. you see it in in in. You know, his the recent, the most recent thing I was reading was about these magazines. You know, where he, as the editor, um, holds together three, four, five very different factions, and um, and you understand why these factions go act the way they do, and why they, you know, why they fall into error. And Newman manages to keep it all together. Um, Maybe we could go back to the um, dialectic you just mentioned, Katie, and, and, and the um, objectivity of truth, but then also the subjectivity of the person, which seems to me rather rich in Newman. So could we talk about that for a little bit, this idea that you know Newman knows that we need dogma, we need absolute doctrines that hold true, but he's especially and impressively attuned to the subjectivity and the depth and the uniqueness of the person, uh, almost as if the person's a world to herself or himself, right? So how do, how do those two things exist within Newman and, and as you might have it for us as well? I think it might have been Newman who originated, I might be wrong about this, uh, but he might have originated the, the um, metaphor of, the, of conscience as the voice of God in the soul, uh, which now the catechism uh, has adopted. And I think that's what he saw there that conscience is that original relation between the unique individual and God. And therefore, it has this uh, supreme authority. Many Catholics have a tendency, I would say conservative Catholics, have a tendency to look at conscience as a faculty of reasoning, that you have the objective moral law, and what conscience is supposed to do is learn the objective moral law and then uh, sort of uh, understand from that or analyze from that which um, laws apply to my particular case. But that's sort of still out exterior to the person, whereas Newman understood it much more as attuning ourselves to the voice of God in our own soul 
And the way we refine our conscience is through obedience to that call of God within our soul. So very often when you hear Catholics talk about forming conscience, what they mean is studying the catechism. What Newman meant is obeying what God is saying to me. So this very clear... So the liberals will say, well, conscience is if I don't feel guilty about it, then it's not wrong. This is very different from Newman too. This is, this is really this deep looking within and taking myself and my soul and my salvation very seriously. What is God telling me to do here? And obeying that and, and thereby gaining strength, gaining an interior moral strength. And that's why Newman could say, the Pope, yes, but, but con- I'll toast the Pope, but conscience first. Um, not because he was unserious about obedience, but because he was so serious about <laughs> obedience. But it was really obedience to God. And what you said at the end there, I think puts a nice fine point on it that Newman wasn't unserious about obedience, but he understood that you, the voice of God speaking in the conscience needs to be obeyed. And it's not, if God is the source of doctrine and dogma, yes. and is also the voice in the conscience, they won't be at odds, right. really. Right. They uh, may be at odds in a particular case, but you learn from acting on that case, if you are actually serious. So I always associate it with that wonderful um, Robert Bolt play about Thomas mm-hmm, More. Right. When he says to the Duke of Norfolk, if you, you know, you're holding your, I'm holding myself in my hands and it's going to slip through my fingers. It's yeah. this, it's this, I am so serious, um, about my life, my salvation and, um, my hopes for myself, my sense of responsibility in front of my creator that I have to step with fear and trembling here. And, um, I think that it accords so much better. I think we're losing our culture. Like this, we have, I'm speaking here of conservative Catholics among whom I count myself, we have this tendency, for instance, to reject in a knee-jerk way the the formulation, my truth. I think if we understand it in Newman's sense, we we don't understand it as subjectivism, we understand it as subjectivity, Mm. this personal responsibility. And then that gives us a bond with our culture instead of an alienation from our culture. Let's let's link with the people in our culture who understand the concept of my truth. Maybe they got it in a 12-step program, for instance, and they they understand how it works. Um, and they're not they're not relativists. They're personally they're taking responsibility for themselves, the life that they have, and the next step they can take. And I think that's what Newman would say. He, the light that I have is the is what I is what I follow, and that's how I grow my conscience, deepen my conscience, refine my conscience. Reminds me of his categories of real and notional assent, which are maybe more technical, but he's trying to get at this idea that we can know something, right, at the intellectual sort of cognitive level. You can you know write down the definition on, on a test, but for it to become truly personal, it does have to become, in a sense, possessed by oneself, yeah. right. Uh, that that real ascent um, exactly right. yeah and that's it has to become subjective I think Kierkegaard also talks about that that it, it has the truth has to be duplicated in one's soul and only then can it have a kind of transformative influence on the personality uh, anyway I was going to add that but then you you did already <laughs> so um, and that has everything to do of course with subjectivity right uh, if you have a 
a rich sense of the subject, then uh, then almost you know as a consequence you you recognize that it's one thing to understand something intellectually and another thing for that truth to sink in and and uh, and soak through and transform the individual. And the, the notional isn't an antithesis to the real. It's sort of a necessary yeah. precursor, but it has to really become personal to truly be yeah. impactful and truly the person. And yeah. felt, yeah, become right. felt knowledge, right? And I think that's especially true of moral knowledge. It's one thing to to learn natural law, for instance, or the catechism. But it's another thing to feel in yourself, you know, to sort of really desire in yourself virtue or holiness um, and to really feel um, the fear of sin and corruption. Mm-hmm. To choose that, choose the one from love rather than a kind, a kind of mere technical adherence or something. I'm thinking of the apologia now in that um, it's not like Newman was just sort of interiorly navel-gazing all the time. And in that he's narrating how these different individuals, their ideas, their books, influenced him from, from the outside, right? So he's always in conversation with others and their works and, you know, even all the way back to the church fathers. So he's not, he's not just sort of watching his soul in an interior mirror. One of my one of that that's another he has that long summer where he threw himself into reading the fathers um, and how much that affected him. But he also in the in the beginning of the Apologia he talks about each one he'll name and he'll he'll kind of review the different characters that he met at Oxford and what he got from each one individually. This one taught me this principle. From this one I learned, you know logical thinking you know from this one i learned to temper my language you know from it and and i find that very touching but then there comes this moment in him also where he i think he's about 28 years old where he starts to notice that he also had influence on others and he said for me this is like springtime after winter you know he he allows himself to be influenced for a long time but then he allows himself also to enjoy the fact that he's now also influencing others and he loves that um mutual thing. So his so much of his life and thinking comes from friendship and that's why he suffers so much when he loses so many friends when he becomes a Catholic. And that was really and you've talked about this before, he felt within himself that he needed to, right? Become a Catholic. Like he had been flirting with it, right? Pursuing it, exploring it. Like he has that experience in the Mediterranean where he's sort of, you know, the maybe anti papist prejudices from his youth start to fall away. So it's a long process, but he does get to a point, right, where he, he, he feels in his conscience that he must. Yeah, and that's right. a big, I mean, this is why there's the long delay. You know, the first blow to his position as an Anglican, I think, comes in 39, and then again in 41. And 1839 and 1841, you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, so intellectually, those are sort of shattering moments, but he... All, sort of out of principle, uh, sets them aside, you know, because he wants to, um, because he wants to be faithful, basically. And then, uh, but he can't, he can't keep it at bay, and then more things happen, both things that are done by the bishops in England, and more that he does, more of the reading that he does, um, you know, makes clear to him that the Church of England is first, you know, not 
not as great as he thinks it is, then he actually thinks it's in schism, and then he thinks the Catholic Church is the true church, but he still doesn't convert because he thinks it's sort of a duty uh, to be to stay in the communion in which you're born, in which God has placed you. And he says very explicitly, he doesn't go, he doesn't want to go by his own reason. If he's going to go to the church of the, to the true church, he needs to, he needs a call of duty. And um, so then he then he um, yeah, I mean it's both, it's reason and a call of duty. But he definitely doesn't want to lean on his own understanding, as I. Uh, Sort of explain it to myself, and and that call comes in forty five. I think is it forty four. I think forty five. Uh, uh, where where he can say he says nobody should leave the church of his birth, unless he can say to himself, if I were to die today, in this church, I'm going to be damned. Basically, hmm. so so it's that strong a call that you need before you exercise the right of private judgment, because he's also very suspicious of that. The private judgment is a Protestant thing as far as he's concerned. Um, and so, of course, in a conversion from one church to another, that's what you're doing. You're, 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 you're no longer um, accepting gratefully and dutifully the religion of your birth. You're, you're taking your life into your own hands and going to another church. <clears throat> so for that step, he needs a real call of duty, and, uh, and that's when he jumps. He also dreaded the idea, the very idea of being thought a sort of unserious person who could just change his religion. You know, he was he um, he felt that was a sort of slur upon the character of a man who changes his mind on such ultimate issues. But um, he felt he had to eventually. He and he also came to understand that his anti the anti papist uh, positions were a kind of uh, stain on his imagination, he called mm -hmm. it, that he had acquired um, in his youth. Um, and he, he realized that it was partly the encounter with this very simple Dominican priest who finally um, received him into the church that finally made those go away, that he realized a lot of what he had assumed and taken for granted about the Catholic Church and its, its corruptions as he saw it um, was not true. And he had seen it as the the real pure church, the Catholic Church, with a small t, a small c, was to be found in antiquity, and the, the Catholic Church since had been acquiring all sorts of you know doctrinal and and, and cultural um, sort of carbuncles or whatever <laughs> that he and he later when he was writing the development of doctrine when he realized oh actually the truest um, realization of the ancient church is in in the present world is in the Catholic Church because truth grows and develops. And that was when, right, right in the middle of writing the development of doctrine, that the final barriers to his own conversion uh, fell and he could do it. Yeah, really, he had to do it. It's a striking work because it's so historically attuned to the past and then and the present and everywhere in between, but the, doctrine, the, the definition of the Immaculate Conception really seems to be a nice... Um, angle through which he can view the whole development of doctrine, right? That this isn't some invention. Right. It's been around in some way, shape, or form since the early centuries. Um, was no, really there was the doctrine of the infallibility mm -hmm. of the Pope, which he resisted. He didn't want that. He opposed it. And then when it actually was um, pronounced, he was 
so happy about the text because he found it much more modest and much more restricted. You know, it was only in matters of faith and morals, only when he's pronouncing the. You know, he's he. There was another example of um, the 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 sort of divine uninventability of how how beautifully um, the the doctrine of the church within these very dramatic and contentious historical circumstances actually emerges with such perfection. One thing that's very interesting about, I find, about the uh, development of doctrine is that he, Newman, finds his way into the Catholic Church through a serious study of the history of the Church, which is exactly the kind of study the Church at that time was fighting against. I mean, mm. it's, it's this, this kind of, because they were much more dogmatic. You know, it was dogmatic mm-hmm. theology, right. it was a kind of rational, um, metaphysical system, and this all this interest into into the history of the church and trying to explain how things developed historically, that um, that was adamantly resisted in Rome at the time. And uh, so it's interesting that the very thing that was the church was fighting against is the is the thing that brought Newman into the church. And then it took him, uh, I mean, it took many years for the church to finally accept. This uh, the the importance of historical studies into the uh, you know the councils and and, and whatnot. So, for instance, uh, uh, what's his name, Dollinger, the German um, mm-hmm. thinker who, in some ways, was a lot like Newman, uh, studying the development of doctrine. Um, he uh, he, in the end, was uh, censured and, and excommunicated and and. Uh, even though, intellectually speaking, they were very alike. Um, so, it's a nice paradox about his conversion, I think. Right. What will be the way into Newman for someone who hasn't read him before, or has only heard his name, or maybe read Lead Kindly Light? What will be the place to start, or the spirit with which to approach him? I think that's also very difficult. Now, I, you know, um, thinking about that, too, again, my favorite is memoir, so I... For me, it's the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. But even that is rather difficult because it is so time-bound. You know, you read it, and Newman is writing it at a moment when his entire audience knew all these personalities. They knew who Dr. Watley was. They knew who Hurel Frude was. They knew who Pusey was. They, they knew exactly what the contours of the Oxford movement were. And for a lot of us, that's, that's uh, you know, that's, that's completely unknown. And then you add to it that um, Newman's prose, while incredibly beautiful, incredibly powerful, it's also Victorian. <laughs> so it's not easy for us. Um, yes, because many people would argue it's the sermons, you know, the proclaimed plain sermons meant for the ordinary listener. That would be a, that would be a way in. But... I'm not sure if people nowadays would read those sermons and, you know, that's sort of tossed to the side after three or four pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're difficult. This is way too complicated, you know. Right. It doesn't start with a little joke. and he <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess partly I'd wanna, I would want to tell people ahead of time that it's, it's not easygoing, but it's very rewarding if you can... Um, deal with that, the difficulty of the language, and open yourself more and more to the, um, the personality of the man and try to enter into his circumstances.
Another good one, I mean, if you're interested in the topic, is uh, the idea of university, and that's uh, it's very, uh, also the development of doctrine. Depending on someone's interest, the development of doctrine has some very accessible passages, I think, and uh, and some more difficult ones that could possibly be skipped, and you'd still get the general idea. But the idea of the university is also in it's a couple of lectures. You can go through one lecture at a time. And he builds a very convincing, beautiful case in beautiful language. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that his prose is difficult at first, but once you get on the inside of it, it's yeah. rewarding. And yeah. it's not just decoration or ornament either. It's really at the the ideas and the sentiments and the emotions are one and the same with the prose. And that's rather, there's an integrity, I think, there. Yeah, and he's absolutely brilliant with things like analogies and, you know, uh, humor. I mean, some of his. Some of his writing is, is you know, deeply funny <laughs> because it's he is so amused, for instance, at the idea of the like he he has a, a, these essays against what was called the Tamworth Reading Room, which at the time these are sort of secular politicians who think oh, we can uh, improve the the sort of the moral tone of society by having these reading rooms where people can have access to knowledge and Newman just thought that was hilarious the idea that you could correct moral character um, by you know reading rooms um, so he's he he he's really good at kind of tearing into these ideas that at first sound plausible and then he just rips them to shreds and so I I love his reading for that but even I who love Newman and who have gotten these this wonderful course in graduate school still today, you know, now that I, uh, I'm used to the Internet and so on, find it difficult. But all his writing is online, so you can start there. You know, you can read his letters. You can read um, the Apologia, you know, without investing a huge amount of money or anything like that. You, right. know, you can just work your way through and find out what speaks to you. Um, I think it's interesting to me that when you look at an image of him, and I'm not saying he wasn't this, but he looks very genteel, very reserved, very almost um, sensitive. And he was, all, I guess, all that, but he's also a controversialist, yeah. engaged with ideas. And you know, reading about the Apologia, right, he wanted to come out forcefully against this charge against him with great vigor and yeah. not make it seem like he was unserious or that he didn't think the charges were um, uh, to be dealt with in the most earnest of ways. So... His pictures, at least to me, seem to uh, fool me um, regarding his real character. He seemed to be, in a sense, there's a, there's a dawkiness and fight within him um, that you get to know. Yeah. I mean, biographies of him or his own writings. Yeah, he has, uh, there's a line in the Apologia about he had a supreme confidence in his cause. He came back from that trip to Italy that you mentioned earlier with his friend, Harald Frude, with this immense um confidence in this cause and the cause was really to turn the church of england away from this drift into liberalism back to the ancient church the church of dogma the church of truth the church of transcendence the church of liturgy and so on and um he had this immense amount of energy and he said that afterwards even looking back and even my friends it's almost startling to see that that um that dimension of his personality which afterwards again was kind of withdrawn for a while, but it could definitely come out. And I remember Dr. Crosby also telling us that Newman had a lot of fun, and, and the people who knew him said also he had a marvelous sense of humor. And you do see that in his writing, but you don't see it in his pictures, like yeah. you say. I mean, he's 
some people have regretted that some of the pictures of him have given a wrong impression of a sort of effete, um, hypersensitive. And we even have a colleague and friend who thinks that Newman was very thin-skinned and doesn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I say a couple more things that Please. just occurred to me? Because I, I think it's important to see that Newman wasn't just an intellectual. This is one of the, you know, coincidence of opposites in his character. Uh, one thing that he does throughout his writings, um, but especially maybe in the, in the grammar of ascent, is is uh, defending the the faith of the ordinary people, which is hardly more than prejudice. And, I mean, it's not very well thought through and so on. It's just ordinary folk who believe what they've been told, and they believe it deeply. And so he defends um, this ordinary piety of ordinary people against the attack from snobs, uh, intellectual snobs, or, or even the brilliant mind who have truth on their side, but, but still just unsettle the ordinary faithful. So, so also intellectually, he takes the side of the ordinary people. And then uh, I was just reading, you know, after his conversion, he he tries to figure out what what should they become. He and a couple of friends that converted at the same time, what should they do in the church? And they consider becoming Jesuits or, or whatnot. And in the end, they decided to become oratorians. And they start an oratorian, an oratory in uh, Birmingham. And the ordinary people of Birmingham had this, you know, they a little, they were a little suspicious of this whole Oxford clan that came up to Birmingham. And one of the things that really broke the ice was that there was a, a an epidemic of some, I forget now what the sickness was, but it was serious and, and infectious. And the minute Newman heard of it, he and his group went over, you know, to, to minister to the sick. And uh, in the event, it, it had pretty much ended by the time he showed up, but that um, concrete pastoral mm -hmm. activity, uh, which he did throughout his life, but you don't read much about, is, um, is characteristic of Newman. He, he was uh, very much, and uh, there was one, at one point, uh, somebody said, come to Rome because, you know, he, implying that in Rome he would be among people more to his liking and more, to, you know, uh, up status, to his yeah. level and status. And he replied, saying, people of Birmingham have souls, too. And, mm -hmm. you know, who wouldn't come. He, he despised that kind of an attitude. And uh, so... He directed the girls' choir at his parish. Yeah. Like, yeah. The way you were describing his care for the belief of, of sort of common pusiting yeah. believers, in a way, it reminds me of Ratzinger. Um, I think he said something to, to that effect, right? He was trying to, basically, in a lot of his writings, just validate the belief that people yeah. had in his sort yeah. of Bavarian uh, parishes and of course doing it with the greatest intellectual rigor and depth but at the end of the day it's all at the service of the people of God yeah. um, and he also of course shared with Ratzinger the the love of the fathers the mm -hmm. going back to these sources um, and the um, commitment to reform you know Ratzinger was one of the movers and shakers in Vatican II and calling for reform so there too, they have a lot in common. And Ratzinger, of course, beatified Newman and loved Newman. In his sermon, The Individuality of the Soul, John Henry Newman invites us to, quote, survey some populous town. Crowds are pouring through the streets, some on foot, some in carriages. While the shops are full and the houses too, could we see into them? 
every part of it is full of life. Hence we gain a general idea of splendor, magnificence, opulence, and energy. But what is the truth? Why, that every being in that great concourse is his own center. He has his own hopes and fears, desires, judgments, and aims. He is everything to himself, and no one else is really anything. No one outside of him can really touch him, can touch his soul, his immortality. He must live with himself forever. He has a depth within him unfathomable, an infinite abyss of existence. End quote. I thought that would be a nice addition, considering the themes of, of today's episode. And I'd like to thank Katie and Jules Van Skyzik for their time and insight into the life and work of John Henry Newman. I'd encourage you to drop down into the show notes and, and find the link to the Personalist Project website, and you can click through to that to find out more about personalist thought, especially in the key of Newman, Wojtyla, and Von Hildebrand. And so this wraps up our third installment of four, focusing on the life and work of John Henry Newman. Next episode, we'll continue this theme uh, from a different angle. And that will, with that installment, we'll wrap up our focus on Newman and then transition and proceed onward to a focus on the life and work of John Dunn Scotus, who some have likened to Newman or at least brought into conversation with Newman in certain ways. Um, and so hopefully we can, we can at least see that uh, to a degree. Until that point, though, let's continue journeying further up and further in.